Hey, can we take a minute and just say thank you to this worship team week after week? Sam just came up to me near the end of the worship back there and said, this is wonderful, worshiping God with this team. So thank you guys and the ones of you who are sitting in the crowd out there. This week I've been thinking about discipleship, passing on life to others, life lessons, life truth, life lived to other people. Me and John took part in some discipleship on Friday. I discipled him in the important ways of Jimmy John's. It was his first time. Yeah. Amen. Lemuel, huh? <laughs> his first time there. And I took him up to the menu and I told him I always get the number nine, the Italian nightclub with hot peppers. He said, oh, I don't do hot peppers. Well, I said, all those five ninety nine sandwiches are good. He said, how big are they? I said, they're about this big. The bread's wonderful, the meat's wonderful, and you can even get something called an unwitch. If you don't like the bread, you can get a wrap and lettuce. Two guys don't get that, though. <laughs> so he went with the number 12. He, he didn't follow my discipleship exactly, but it's all right. We had a great meal together. I also saw uh, something on the wall at the booth where we were sitting there. I don't know if you've noticed. They got interesting signs all over the place, including in the restrooms. I will not go into what the restroom Signs that Jimmy John say, you can explore that yourself sometime, but at the table where we were sitting, there was a, a sign with some lines from Dave Barry. It says, 16 things it took me over 50 years to learn. I won't share all of them with you, but I'll share a couple of them with you. Some, some of them were, were funny, like never under any circumstances take a sleeping pill and a laxative on the same night. There's a fine line between a hobby and a mental illness. Never lick a steak knife. And some of them were, were actually some good, good truths to hold on to for life, which some of those were too. Uh, you should not confuse your career with your life. A person who is nice to you but rude to the waiter is not a nice person. And the last one, never be afraid to try something new. Remember a lone amateur built the ark. A large group of professionals built the Titanic. <laughs> I enjoyed that. So if you're at Jimmy John's, you'll have to go down there and check out the other Tim. But I found it interesting because I've been thinking about discipleship all week. He wanted to pass on these life lessons now that he was 50. While we were eating our lunch, we also had an interesting meeting with a young man named Jason who used to be in a Bible study with me and Justin about seven or eight years ago. Jason walked by. He was visiting. He, he lives on the eastern Mogollon Rim, and he was just in on work, and I asked him, how's it going out there? And he said, well, me and my wife are really praying about launching a church plant out there. God's like doing some stuff in our heart and making us a little restless about that. And we're just starting to pray through it, and John and I talked to him a little bit and said, hey, number one, we'll be praying for you. Number two... We're no experts at this church planning thing, but we've been experimenting for a few years. If you want to team up in prayer and some people to encourage you as you go along the journey, just let us know because that's part of our passion too. We want to help them as they follow God's call in their life. That's, that's discipleship. That's what this whole book of 1 Timothy is about. As the older Paul writes to young Timothy who he left in the city of Ephesus with a job. And Paul wants to disciple Timothy so that Timothy can disciple the people in Ephesus. 
Last week I asked you guys to, to go through the book. We, we talked kind of big picture about some of the main ideas in there. We talked about how when you go through the book, you'll see Paul talking about the importance of right teaching. You'll see him talking about the importance of right living. And you'll see him talking about the importance of right relationships. And we encourage you guys to pull out the book this week. It's only six chapters and say, hey, I'm going to underline all the parts where I see right teaching and put a T next to it, right living and put an L next to it, right relationships and put an R next to it. I won't be that teacher and ask for a show of hands as to how many people did it, but I pray that at the very least as we go through this book, you're exposing yourself to the truth of God in His Word because that's one of Paul's main emphases in the book. Preach the Word in season and out of season. But I want to dive into the first chapter a little bit this week and we're going to start to see what Paul's marching orders are for his young disciple Timothy. We're going to a little bit learn a little bit more about their relationship. We're going to little learn, boy, we're going to learn how to talk. <laughs> that should be fun. Uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about the city of Ephesus, where he was, and then we're going to start to look at what his marching orders were. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our very first verse in our series, Put Me in Coach. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. A couple of things we want to bring out of there. One, Paul wasn't just doing this because he felt like it. He wasn't going around the world preaching the gospel because it was some bright idea he had. He says it's by the command of God. He's saying, Timothy, what I write you today is not just from me, it's from God. So, so pay close attention, young man. And he calls Timothy my true son in the faith. Why did he call him that? Well, it's not because he was his physical son. I'm not going to go back in the book of Acts and unpack every chapter, but I'll give you a summary of what happened. In Acts chapter 14, way back on Paul's first missionary journey, he and his team went through a city called Lystra. That's where Timothy and his family lived. Timothy lived there with his dad and mom and his grandma. And evidently on that first journey, Timothy heard the message about Jesus Christ and placed his faith in Jesus as a child or a young teen. Fast forward a couple of years to Acts chapter 16. Paul and his team come back through and Timothy's grown a little bit. And some of the people in Lystra say to Paul, Hey Paul, this Timothy guy, he's really grown in his faith. We see him loving the Lord and, and loving people and speaking the truth. Maybe you should consider taking him along with you on this journey. And Paul said, well, come along, young man. Let's go. Paul later made a third journey where he went to Ephesus and stayed three years. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But later in Paul's ministry, Paul trusted Timothy so much that he said, Timothy, I want you to stay there in Ephesus and help them through some stuff. You see the process of discipleship from an unsaved young man to a partner in ministry. And I want to encourage you with something you may or may not have known about young Timothy. He grew up in a family where mom believed and dad did not. Did you know that about Timothy? 
Some of you know what that's like, and you know the challenges and frustrations of it, but Timothy gives us hope. 2 Timothy 1.5, his second letter to the young man, he, Paul says to him, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Absent there is father, notice. And I'm persuaded now lives in you also. That gives us hope. Look, what, no matter what kind of family you grow up in, whether both parents are saved or one's saved, or let's be frank, maybe none of them were saved. That doesn't mean God can't use you. and It doesn't mean God doesn't have big plans for your life. God used Timothy to change Ephesus and to change the world. So don't let whatever family challenges you find challenging hold you back from pursuing God's call in your life. Verse 3, Paul goes on to the young man. He says, as I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. This is after the book of Acts. We believe most likely that Acts chapter 28, you see Paul in house arrest in Rome. It's from there that he writes Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians and all those wonderful prison letters. But we believe he was let go. And after that, he looked at Ephesus and said, Timothy, i got a job for you there. I want you to go there and stay there. And it seems like Timothy may not have wanted to stay there because he was facing some hard stuff, as we're going to see in this book. That's why Paul says in this letter, I urged you, stay there. It's almost like Timothy may have said to him somewhere along the line, Paul, please, <laughs> you don't know how hard it is here in Ephesus. Let me tell you about these guys that are coming against me and this false teaching and the spiritual warfare. And Paul says, stay on, young man. Stay there. I want to tell you a little bit about this city of Ephesus. This was a major city in the Roman Empire. And Paul didn't always get to stay a long time in places, but he had stayed in this city for three years. And we know if you look at Acts chapter 19 and other parts of Acts, a little bit about what happened there. When he first went there, he started preaching in a Jewish synagogue for a while until many of the Jews in that synagogue got frustrated with Paul's teaching about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and said, get out of here. But what I love about Paul is he didn't say, well, I guess since I ran into a little warfare, God doesn't want me here in the city of Ephesus, so I'm going to head somewhere else. You know what he did? He found a public lecture hall. It was called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. And if you're a Star Wars guy, I didn't study it closely, but I'm pretty sure this is not Lord Tyrannus who is also known as Count Dooku, just in case you're curious. If you're not a Star Wars guy, excuse me for that. But what I love about it, he goes to a public hall and starts preaching the truth. It makes me think about a public school. Right here, we're preaching the Word of God. God's not confined to the synagogue or the church building. He works wherever and whenever He wants. And what happened is these people in Ephesus started believing in Jesus Christ, started coming to salvation, and they started forming these house churches and each house church was led by elders, and they started spreading the word through Ephesus, which to all of us were like, that's awesome. But not everybody in Ephesus was happy about that. If you know anything about Ephesus, it was like the headquarters for the worship of this goddess named Diana. Along with the worship of Diana came a lot of sexual immorality. There also came a lot of money. You know how when you go to Disney World or Disneyland, you can't come home without your kids having the, the Mickey Mouse hat and the ears and the little light-up toys and 
all the cotton candy and everything. Well, when you went to Ephesus, at the temple of Artemis or Diana, she had two names depending on whether you're talking Roman or Greek, there were guys there like a guy named Demetrius that sold little souvenirs of Diana. You could go there, worship her, and take the experience home with a Diana souvenir. But guess what happened? Paul starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Ephesus, and all of a sudden the sales start going down. When Christianity starts messing with the status quo is when the world starts pushing back. And so Demetrius actually got so upset he started a riot in the city because of the loss of sales. You can imagine the tension that brought. We also know from Acts 19 that a lot of people in the city of Ephesus practiced sorcery and magic. And Paul came and preached the gospel and said, no, you can't just add Jesus to everything you're doing now. He, he not only wants to be your Savior, but He wants to be your Lord. You've got to get rid of some stuff in your lives too. It says the people brought thousands if not millions of dollars worth of their magic books after they believed in Jesus and they burned them in the city square. They said, no, no more. We're not going with this magic. We're going with Jesus Christ. One last thing that's good to know before we go on. The last time Paul saw the elders of these new churches in Ephesus, it was an emotional meeting. They loved each other and there were tears, but Paul warned them. He said, guys, guard the flock which God has entrusted to your care, which God bought with His own blood. You think about how valuable the church is to God. He bought it with His own blood. Never forget that. But he says, elders, beware. There are going to be wolves who come in with false teaching. And he says, guys, listen up. There's even going to be some that rise up from within. And he tells the elders, guard your church against this false teaching. Not if it comes, but, but when it comes. Okay, so there's a little context. Now fast forward to where we're at when young Timothy's there. And you'll see that Paul was right on in his warning. Verse 3, he says, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that what? You may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Bada bing, bada boom. The warning was on purpose because he knew it was coming and sure enough, it came. Now that Timothy's there, the false teachers are there too. And Timothy's got a tough job in front of him. Teach them to stop teaching false doctrines. Teach them to stop devoting themselves to myths and Endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. I don't know if you've ever encountered false teaching directly. It's an interesting thing because when you first hear it, it sounds really spiritual. It sounds like, boy, that's what I've been looking for. That kind of secret knowledge that's been hidden from me by the church for all these years. This person has it. i got to go to that conference or i got to find out more about this. But we've got to ask the question, what was it going on in this church? When he says myths and endless genealogies, what was the teaching? And we've got to admit, we don't know exactly what it was. There are a couple of things we do know. When he writes to another young man in a similar position named Titus, he talks to him about Jewish myths. 
We know there are a couple of Jewish books written after the Old Testament Scriptures where, where they tried to take the genealogies from the Old Testament and weave these fanciful stories into them. They try to retell some of the story of the Old Testament but add a bunch of stuff to make it sound better and more spiritual. And that could very well be what they're looking at here. Four or five or six of the commentators that I looked at said, we think that there's a good chance that's what was going on. All these fanciful stories added to Old Testament Scripture. That tells us a couple of things. We don't need to be adding to Scripture. When, when you hear someone adding to Scripture, your radar ought to go off. Thomas Constable from Dallas Theological Seminary said it this way, we should be creative in delivering the message. We should not be creative in the content of the message. In the church, we're not in the manufacturing business. We're in the delivery business. And when you start to smell that someone's manufacturing things, your radar ought to go off. It was C.S. Lewis that said, the best teaching is reminding. We've already got God's truth. Let's just deliver it. Creative how we deliver it, not creative in what we deliver. Now he goes on in verse 5 to say something. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's interesting because we have an objective test. When you hear teaching, your first thing ought to be, does this line up with the truth of God's Word? And if it doesn't, you throw the teaching out. That's the objective test. But here, he gives us a relational test. The goal of this command is love. So another thing you can look for in teaching is, how do the people who follow this teaching act? How does the teacher who teaches this teaching live? Because if the person teaching it or the people who listen are proud and act like they're, they're better than everybody else, if they're legalistic and trying to gain God's favor on their own, if they're unloving to other people, that ought to make you pause and say, wait a second, there's something in this teaching that is not right because God's teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ leads to a life of love. If the teaching meets the objective test and the love test, you're heading the right direction. But Paul says in verse 6, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. <laughs> what do you really think, Paul? Tell us how you feel about these guys. Did you see what he said? We don't like talk this straight these days sometimes. He says they've departed from these and all they do is meaningless talk. Some translations say vain jangling. Cling, clang, cling, clang, cling, clang. It's annoying. And it's empty. And he says they want to teach, but they don't know what they're talking about or, or what they so confidently affirm. Just because somebody's confident in what they deliver does not mean it's the truth. These guys are a, are a fine example. And it makes me wonder, what are some of the kinds of meaningless talk that we sometimes fall into that the weird definitions of teaching or maturity. 
We sometimes define maturity in weird ways. I'll, I'll share one example. Blew my mind. It wasn't somebody in this church, but I was having a conversation one day with a man. And started out good. He said, you wouldn't believe how much I've grown in my faith and in my walk with Jesus. And I said, really? Tell me what God's doing in your life. What's, he, what's going on? And he said, well, when I was first a Christian, back then I read the New International Version. After a couple of years of walking with the Lord, I started reading the English Standard Version. And now I've moved up to the King James. <laughs> Let me preface this with a couple of things. I don't have any problem with the King James Bible. It's beautiful. 16th century English. It's very poetic. I grew up on it. If that's your Bible of choice, okay. What's the problem with what the guy said? He equated spiritual maturity with what version of the Bible he was reading. Where do we get that? Well, spiritual maturity was how God uses His Word and the Spirit within us to transform our lives. The way we speak and the things we share and the way we love. But we do that with all kinds of things. Sometimes we get favorite pet doctrines. You ever do this yourself or listen to somebody that zooms in on one little doctrine? and they just stay there forever? What happens when we do that? You miss the big picture of God's Word. God's Word, which in its entirety points to Jesus Christ. Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Theological, once said this. He said, you need to read God's Word both microscopically to get the details and telescopically to get the big picture. If you leave either one of those out, you tend to get warped and we start focusing on minor things. Paul likes to talk about big rocks. If you got a jar and you put the big rocks in it first, you make sure they get in there, then you can fill in the cracks with the sand. The big rocks are the more important stuff, the sand is the less important stuff. But what happens if you put the sand in first? There's no room for the big rocks. Paul's saying, when you teach, when you look at God's Word, make sure the big rocks are in there. Rocks of Jesus Christ and, and grace and faith and the Holy Spirit. The Gospel. There's a weird verse in Ecclesiastes, and it's especially weird in the light of being at a memorial service this week. But it's true. There's a verse in there when you first read it, you shake your head, it says, it's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. And you read that at first and you say, what are you, Solomon, are you some kind of sadomasochist? Like, what, what's wrong with you, man? But as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe what he's saying is a lot of pursuits and stuff we get wrapped up in in this world is empty, but when you sit in a house of mourning, you start to think about what really matters. You start to think about what's eternal and what I really need to be focused on. And it made me think in light of this passage, when we teach God's Word... We need to think about, does this, what I'm talking about today, does it really matter in light of eternity? It's not to say we can't focus on small things sometimes, but those small things better have eternal significance. If they don't, let's not camp there. Let's move on. It's good to evaluate our teaching. I'll leave this section with one final quote by N.T. Wright. He said, Paul has in mind two basic types of teaching. One goes round and round in circles, 
picking up interesting ideas and theories and playing with them endlessly, though not necessarily having a very detailed understanding of what such things might really be all about. The other has a clear aim, cuts out anything that gets in the way of it, and goes straight to the point. It's good to look and say, what kind of teaching am I listening to? Is it just playing with empty facts or is it getting to the point, the truth? He goes on to talk about the law, because these teachers evidently were talking about the law. He says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. He says the law is good if you use it properly. What's the proper use of the law? You remember what he said in Galatians 3, right? He said to that Galatian church, the law is like a school teacher. It's like a school teacher. They make the best creative signs and stuff for their teaching sometimes. A school teacher comes before you and uses the law to say, God is holy. Worship Him. Next sign. You are not holy. <laughs> Next sign. You cannot get holy on your own. You need someone else to get you there. Next sign. You need Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross and in His resurrection and life. You need to trust in that to be made holy. That's the proper use of the law. Also, we can look in the law as believers and learn a lot about God. How wonderfully holy, even gracious, beautiful He is. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says there's lessons we can learn. But the wrong use of the law is to dive in there, get into the details for the purpose of spiritual pride or somehow getting to God on my own. Whenever we read the Old Testament, it ought to lead us to gratitude for Jesus. Right now I'm in that time of the year where I'm in Leviticus. Anybody else in there? Yearly reading in the book of Leviticus right now? Anybody ever been there? <laughs> Leviticus 6.13 I read this week said the fire on the altar must be burning continuously. Why? Because there had to be continuous sacrifices of animals to cover over their sins. I thought about Hebrews chapter 7 where it says Jesus sacrificed for us once for all. And in that moment, all I can say in my heart is, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. In fact, if you want a good example of how to use the Old Testament law, read Leviticus and then read Hebrews. It's a, it's a great picture of what he's talking about here. It's valuable. Just don't use it to try to climb your way to God or make yourself better than other people. He goes on to speak of the true gospel. Check this out, verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that He considered me trustworthy, appointing me to His service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, 
I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a contrast. First part of the chapter, he's talking about these guys with their myths and their endless genealogies and their special secret knowledge. Then he shares about his life. Now, if you know about Paul, he grew up as a Pharisee. If anyone knew the Old Testament, it was Paul. There's a good chance he had the whole thing, if not most of it, memorized. Okay? Does he even mention that in this passage when he talks about his salvation? No. Because his salvation happened on the Damascus Road. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. You can read about it. It's almost as though he's going out of his way to leave that part out. And say, I was saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Through faith. When he calls himself a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, it helps us remember his background. You ever run into somebody and you say, this person will never believe in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Okay, Saul will give you hope. You remember him. He hunted down Christians, threw them in prison. He, He breathed out murderous threats. He stood there in approval as they stoned the Christian Stephen to death. He thought he was serving God until he met Jesus on that Damascus road. And Jesus said, it is me. You are persecuting. I am the Lord. And that man that many, even the early church, when he started coming around, they said, I'm not going to be at that meeting. <laughs> that, that guy like, put my brother in prison. He tried to kill my sister, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to... And there was Barnabas there saying, no, guys, he really came to the Lord. God really did a work in his life. And Paul says, that happened to me as an example. Basically, he says, I'm the worst of sinners. If Christ can save me, he can save anybody. And so when I read that in contrast with the false teaching, I want to say a couple things. One, the gospel we preach must not be based on superior intellect or secret knowledge. It must be based on the grace of Jesus Christ. It must be something that can only receive by faith in that grace. And if the gospel you preach cannot reach even the worst of sinners, you need to start preaching a different gospel. Because Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus, can reach any sinner that will trust and repent and put their faith in Jesus. Can your gospel do that? If not, let's maybe take a a week and reread the book of Romans that we just went through and get our gospel straight. He closes by saying this. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on 
to faith and a good conscience. I've got a friend in Ohio that just messaged me on Thursday. He's a pastor. And he put in his message to me and one other guy who's been in ministry. He said, guys, would you please pray for me? He said, I'm going to spend a day alone. He said, because I'm feeling alone and beat up and misunderstood in ministry. I'm going to go spend some time with God. Would you guys please pray for me? We said, you bet, man. And we pray that God gives you everything you need in that time with him. I think about Timothy here and the, the situation he's in. False teachers around him. And Paul's saying, you need to stand up to him. Hard place to be in. Perhaps Timothy got discouraged at times. We know from other passages he, he leaned towards being timid in personality. But he's saying, hey, Timothy, you remember the prophecies once made about you? We don't know what they were exactly, but evidently at some point there were some people, maybe in his hometown of Lystra before they sent him off with Paul, that got around him and said, Timothy, we see God's work in your life. We see this gift and this gift, and we believe God is going to use you for his kingdom. Have you had people do that in your life? People that affirm what God's put in your life and say, I see, I see this in you. And I see this in you. What Paul's saying to Timothy and he's saying to us is when it gets discouraging, go back to that moment where you first knew or you first got a glimpse of what it was God wanted you to do with your life for him. Hold on to that because there are times where that is the only thing that will keep you going. It gets dark. Paul, you're so quotable. I'm going to say it again. Never doubt in the dark what God's told you in the light. You're going to have to start writing this stuff down, man. <laughs> Timothy, remember, God puts you there and he's going to use you so that by recalling those prophecies, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Who are these guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander? Well, we learn from 2 Timothy that Hymenaeus was teaching false doctrine. He was discouraging the church there, telling them that Jesus already came back and you all missed it. Okay, that's false teaching. We know about an Alexander in 2 Timothy that Paul says, did much harm to me. We don't know for certain it's the same Alexander because there's a lot of Alexanders back then. But there's a real good chance. Somehow he was harming the Apostle Paul. And he says what? He says, I've handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I don't know if many of you that woke up this morning expected to hear that in church. <laughs> Some strong talk. What's going on from Paul? Well, you know from Jesus' own ministry, he told the disciples the process of discipline. It shapes how we discipline and disciple in the church, right? One of you has a, a problem with another believer that sinned against you, you go to them and you say, brother, sister, you sinned against me. And if they repent at that point, it's over. If they don't repent, you go with another. 
Then you bring in the church leaders if they continue to not repent. And there comes a point where if someone's living in blatant sin, not in a matter of opinion, but against the Word of God, as a church, you say, we love you. But for this time period, you who claim to be a believer and are spitting in the face of God's Word are no longer welcome. That's what Paul's talking here about, handing them over to Satan. Now I know that that is so far from politically correct. Okay? But it's right here in God's Word. When it happens, we have to ask, what's the purpose of it? Is it just to drill that person and hope they never come back? No. It's the hope that by putting them outside the fellowship and outside the protection of the fellowship, that as God uses even Satan, Satan's on a leash. He can only go as far as God lets him. As God uses that in their lives, it will wake them up to their need to repent and come back to their father and come back to the body and begin to live right again. I read that and I say, God really cares about right living in the church. He loves His church. He bought it with His blood. He loves it so much that He's even willing to go that far. But He loves those people too as they're out there. He longs for them to be brought back and that ought to be our hope as well. As we close, I just want to share something we talked about Thursday at Taco Bell over their new wonderful double crunch tacos. So good. Got to go there. It's a limited time offer. Cool habanero, nacho crunch, spicy sweet, all for a dollar. Okay. <laughs> What did we talk about? We talked about, okay. <laughs> Paul's speaking against false knowledge and endless speculations and meaningless talk, right? But does that mean that a walk with Jesus is anti-knowledge or opposed to growing in knowledge? Not at all. Not at all. The, the same guy that wrote this letter wrote numerous other letters filled with the knowledge of Christ to churches, knowledge to hold on to. So he said, how, how do you distinguish between knowledge that's good and knowledge that's not good? Well, we already talked about the objective test, compared against God's Word. We talked about the love test. Does it lead to love? But we also talked about this, something Justin heard someone say one time that really resonated. Whenever you learn something about God, it ought to change you. It ought to help you love God more, worship Him more deeply, love your neighbor more, preach the gospel more, whatever, but it ought to change you. If it doesn't change your life, what happens is what one of my professors warned me about at Bible college. He said, guys, you've got two options with what you're learning here. One is you take it all in and you keep it in and you become a swamp. If you've ever been around a swamp or a stagnant pond, they stink. Basically, you become proud and puffed up and full of yourself and not so pleasant to be around. He said, guys, don't do that. Be a stream. Take the truth of God's Word that goes into you and let it flow through your words and through your life into the lives of others as you speak the gospel of Jesus Christ and live it out. That, to me, is the contrast.